A few weeks ago, some friends of mine uh, invited me to join them, to join their family as they visited the grave of their deceased teenage son on his birthday. And we, we got to the cemetery, and, and there at the cemetery, the, the boy's headstone was decorated with, uh, with balloons and flowers and uh, some little mementos of his. And, and then my friend, uh, the boy's father, he set a can of root beer next to the headstone. And, and then he handed out root beers to all of us who were there, and we drank a root beer in honor of his son. And it was very meaningful to join them in their grief in that way. Uh, but walking away from that time, I thought to myself what I've thought many other times, this isn't how it's supposed to be. Uh, disease and death might be what we're accustomed to in this world, but at the same time, we know that death is something that's very unnatural. I've, I've never encountered a grieving person, religious or non-religious, whatever they believe, I've never encountered a person whose heart was, was totally satisfied and consoled in the abstract concept that, that death is just another step in the evolutionary cycle of natural selection. Be comforted in that. Right? See, whatever we say we believe about God and death, the fact is that when disease and death hurts us, we know internally there's something not right about death something unnatural about it. And that's because when God created humanity, death was not part of our existence. Okay? God created us to live. He created us to enjoy life with him fully. But that changed when human beings willfully turned against God and dishonored his holy name. He did what he said he would do. He punished humanity with death. And that includes both physical death, which is the end of our lives on earth, and that includes spiritual death, because we're made in body and spirit. And spiritual death is the end of our lives with God. Death was not a natural part of the creation that God made. It was not, he did not create death and say, this is very good. Rather, death is the punishment for sin. And whatever we may believe about spiritual things, the fact is that each of us have to face our own deaths. Each of us have to face whatever happens to us after death. And that's a serious matter. It's something that each of us should soberly consider, whatever our age is. And different religious systems offer different ways to deal with this problem, right? Because the death rate is 100%. So everybody has to deal with this in some, some way. The majority of religions around the world teach that if you do certain good deeds through, throughout your life on earth, then you have good reason to believe that you will be blessed after your life on earth. So there's a correlation, they would say, between the good things you do here means you will have a good experience after this life. Another approach is to say the same thing that many people have been saying for thousands of years. Just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. In other words, don't be concerned about how you'll spend eternity. Don't be concerned about your soul. Just live however you want to live right now, and whatever happens later happens. Well, God does not endorse either one of those worldviews. God says that our good deeds in this life do nothing to assure us of a blessed experience after this life. 
God tells us our condition in Isaiah 64, 6. It says this, listen. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So that means our, our righteous deeds, the, the, those good things we do, the benevolent things we do, the brownie points we think we're earning with God are like a polluted garment to him. And that's not because God is condescending. It's because God is more infinitely holy and more infinitely glorious than we can begin to fathom. So, so if we think that the nice things we're doing for others somehow puts God in our debt that he owes us something, then we have severely underestimated God's holiness and we've sincerely, uh, severely underestimated our sinfulness. So what about approaching life with the mindset, well, okay, then let's just eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we may die. Hear me right here. There is a God-honoring way to celebrate life and to live with joy, and the book of Ecclesiastes encourages us to do that in, in a right way, but that's not what we're talking about here. You can throw caution to the wind and do whatever you want to do in this life and treat yourself like you are God. Remember, the, it, I don't encourage anybody to read the, the, the book of Satan, but the first part of that book is do what you will. That's the first commandment. Do whatever you want to do. It's, it's very, it's about me, right? It's me-centered. God created us to be God-centered. And so if you live life like you don't have to give an account to your maker after this life, God says you are a fool, in, in Psalm 14.1, it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says that. And all, this is the truth. All of us in this room have lived foolishly at one time at least. And so hopefully we will say that we were foolish when we used to live that way, right? And thankfully, God let us live to see another day and to turn away from our foolishness and to turn to him in faith. So, so how do we do this? How do we escape disease and, and destruction and death? Because yes, we encounter it in this life. And God wants us to know that this life is a pinprick on the timeline of eternity. So what does that mean for the rest of eternity, that, of, our, of our existence? The way that we escape everlasting disease and destruction and death is by following God's plan, not ours. By following God's plan, not ours. God provides us a solution to this, that neither relies on our good works, nor does it pretend that eternal punishment doesn't exist. In Scripture, God tells humanity, yes, you are under condemnation for the sin of Adam and Eve. Yes, eternal punishment does exist, and no, nothing you can do can save you from that punishment. But for the glory of my name, and because I am eternally gracious, and loving. I'm offering to suffer your eternal punishment for you. I will free you from your bondage to sin. I will remove your guilt. I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And this is what Jesus Christ, God the Son, did for many of us in here when he died on a cross outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. When Jesus hung on that cross, 
He became our sin. And then he suffered for that sin. He suffered God's wrath toward our sin in our place. And then he killed our sin when he was killed so that we might no longer be in bondage to it. See, God is the perfect judge. who He does not sweep sin under the carpet. He, he, sin must be dealt with. It's, it's treason against the God of the universe. And God the Son Jesus offers to be your Savior who has already dealt with sin and death for you. So how do we, how do we escape eternal disease and death? Well, it's by turning away from our old way of thinking about these good deeds and you know, foolish ways of living and instead turning to Jesus as our Savior. By asking, by praying to God and asking him to save us from our sin, by trusting him with our souls, by, say, by believing I cannot get myself out of this. I need a Savior. I need God to save me. We confess with our mouths that Jesus is God. He's Lord. And we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. The Puritan John Owen wrote, unless we're thoroughly convinced that without Christ we are under the eternal curse of God as the worst of his enemies, unless we believe that, we shall never flee to him for refuge. Turn to Jesus for refuge. It's not too late for you if you're alive. (laughs) Don't turn to your own good works. Don't turn to yourself. Don't turn to your family. Turn to Jesus and he will be your refuge and your salvation. This is the gospel. This is the good news. The good news is that there is good news in the midst of this sinful story and that God did it for us. First, First Corinthians 15, 55 to 57, this is what it says. It is, this is awesome. It's, 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 it's preaching to death. It says, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you trust in Jesus, that's your victory song. Wow. Jesus has set his people free from eternal disease and death. And sometimes on earth, God heals people physically from disease and death and gives us a glimpse of the future total restoration of our humanity that awaits every person who's trusting in Jesus. As we've seen in the book of Acts, after Jesus died and rose again and returned to heaven, he sent God the Holy Spirit to fill the apostles, to fill the church, and to heal many people physically and spiritually from disease and death. This morning we're gonna read two short historical accounts of how the Holy Spirit of Jesus healed a man from his disease and he healed a woman from death. So if you have your Bible with you, then please turn with me to Acts 9, 32. Before we read this, let me pray. Let's ask God to help us. 
God, I thank you for bringing us here today to worship you for this message that you've appointed for us today from your word. We ask you, Lord, to continue to forgive us for our sins. Please help us to be imitators of you. We see, God, that sin has ruined humanity in every way. It's ruined the world we live in. There's no hope in the midst of this mess except you, Jesus. And we just thank you for that. We thank you for conquering sin on the cross for us. And may we respond to that through faith in you, and may we bring worship and glory to you forever for that. Many of us in this room, God, have suffered much because of disease and because of death. And we ask that you would minister to us now in a special way. We thank you that because of your grace, because of what you've done for us, sin and disease and death are no longer our eternal lot. We will suffer for a while on earth, but your glory will have the last word in our lives. We thank you for that. We pray for spiritual protection now. We pray for the blessing of the kids who are learning about you next door. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Acts 9, 32 to 35. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Stop there. Verse 32. It says that Peter was going here and there among them all. So in other words, as the leader of the 12 apostles, Peter was traveling between the towns in Judea to visit the different churches that were forming. Right? They'd been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire, and now they're forming. So he is acting as a shepherd, as a pastor, doing what he, he, what he should be doing, visiting these young churches, probably offering, offering them some teaching and some encouragement and, and prayer. And one of the towns that says he visited here was called Lydda, which was about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And, and while he was there, he was introduced to this man named Aeneas. And Aeneas was a man who'd been suffering for many years. He was paralyzed. He'd been bedridden for eight years. Peter, we read, was with Aeneas, and he told him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately after Peter said that, Aeneas got out of bed and stood up. And then word quickly spread about this healing to everybody who lived in that town of Lydda. And then we read about this word Sharon, which was the surrounding region. It was the plain around them. It's still there to this day, the plain of Sharon, okay? And as the leader of the apostles of the early church, Peter had been anointed in a special way by God with an extraordinary ability to proclaim the gospel, the good news about Jesus boldly, and also to perform miraculous healings when he was prompted by the Holy Spirit. And earlier in Acts, we read that Peter was so anointed with the Holy Spirit that, that sick people were camping out in the streets of Jerusalem. They were waiting for him to walk by, hoping that they might be healed by him by either touching one of his garments or by having his shadow just pass over them. And it's, it's very reminiscent of the way that crowds 
reacted to Jesus. When Jesus walked through the city streets, crowds would, would just surround him and begging him for healings. And we, we know of at least one woman who was healed just by touching Jesus' garment as he walked by. And so it's not surprising that the crowds are now treating Peter the same way since Peter is filled with the very Holy Spirit of Jesus. Uh, we must remember there's nothing, super, there's nothing inherently supernatural or mystical about Peter. He just happened to be the tool that Jesus had appointed to heal some people at that point in history. But we know that Jesus is the one doing the healing in this passage and not Peter because Peter again claims healing for the paralyzed man in the name of Jesus. And saying that phrase is not like this mantra or a little weird chant or something, but to call, he was doing this, calling upon the power and the presence of the resurrected and living Christ. That's what he's doing right there. And, and as the power of Jesus heals Aeneas, the Holy Spirit is, is he's showing this beautiful demonstration of the power of Jesus over disease. Disease, which often leads to death, is not more powerful than Jesus, okay? Jesus is more powerful than every disease, and Peter's encounter with Aeneas displays that reality and, and then glorifies Jesus' name. Jesus is the one to credit for this. And, and as we frequently see with other healings in the New Testament, the healing of Aeneas served a much bigger purpose than only healing Aeneas, Right? Verse 35 shows that Aeneas' physical healing validated this gospel message that Peter was preaching to people, and it resulted in many people being healed spiritually. Verse 35 says, and all, think about that word, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. See, when, when they saw, I mean, they knew this Aeneas. <laughs> They knew he'd been in his bed for eight years. And then they saw him walking around. Like, this gospel is the truth. And they turned to the Lord. They believed it. Their souls were healed from sin when they trusted in Jesus and celebrated what he had done to, 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 to rescue them from sin and its consequences. So, yeah, the, the, the healing of Aeneas is a remarkable thing here. But just as remarkable, if not more so, is the healing of all those people who were spiritually born again through faith. In Jesus. I don't know how you get a thousand people to agree on something. But they were all agreeing about this. Jesus is Lord. And they were saved. God took their old, dead, spiritual selves and he made them alive to him. And so sickness and sin, this is part of it. We, we have to realize that, again, there's a physical part of us, but there's a spiritual part of us, Right? It's animating us. It's, it's, it lives in us. So sickness and disease, um, they've not only taken our physical bodies captive, they have taken our spirits captive because of sin. Our, our, our spirits are sick with sin. We do not function with the spiritual health and freedom that we had before sin entered the human race. And this is why people, all of us, in our spirits naturally... Resist God. This is why we push against the idea of submission to God and submitting to an authority of God. This is why in our spirits we, we, we push against the message of Jesus. It's foolishness to us 
in our natural state. It is what the Bible says, it's the stench of death. This is why often when you preach the gospel, people cannot hear it. They have to get up and leave the room. It's the stench of death to those who don't believe. But when Jesus makes us born again through faith in him, he does a miracle. It's a spiritual healing so that our spirits now function the way they're supposed to. And they're growing in sanctification. They're growing in, in, in reflecting the glory of God. Our lives are. It's a spiritual healing uh, so that now God has removed a heart of stone, the heart of stone that was in us. He's put a heart of flesh in us that's alive to God. That is a joy, like, I, I, I love God now. I don't know why. Jesus, Jesus changed me, right? All of a sudden, we're glad in submitting to the one who we know loves us and gave his life for us. And we want to thank him, and we want to worship him with our lives. We want to thank him for setting us free from sin and an eternity of disease and death. So those are the other great miracles here we don't want to miss in this passage. Because it's a short little piece, right? A short little passage. Don't want to miss that in here. That all the residents of Lydda and Sharon turned to the Lord. Praise God. The church was multiplying like we saw last week. God's glory was multiplying through these changed lives. And people's blessing were being multiplied. God was with them and in them in a new, powerful, special way. So this healing of Aeneas shows us victory uh, that we have in Jesus over death, or sorry, over disease. This next part here is where we see Jesus demonstrate his victory and power over death. In Acts 9, 36 to 43. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Don't laugh, you guys. It's not a common name, right? But it's, it's, a, it's just a name. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, and he knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. And then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So Joppa was a town right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. It wasn't too far from Lydda. How do I know this? Because I looked at a map this week. Um, don't know this stuff naturally, okay? Um, and a lot of your Bibles now will have maps in the back, so you can check that out too. Um, but word about Peter had spread to Joppa. And we read that, we read about this wonderful woman named Tabitha. She was a very selfless, compassionate, servant-hearted woman. She was probably, you just know those kind of people in, 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 in a, in a uh, brand new church 
are really important. <laughs> she was important to these people. And she became ill and she died. And so it says her friends and her family took her body, they washed her, they laid her body in the upper room of the house. And then the Christians in Joppa send two men over to Lydda, over to the other town, to find Peter and ask him to come back to Joppa immediately. And he agrees and he travels with them to Joppa, where the men take him to the upper room to see Tabitha's body. The room was crowded because there are bodies in there and people are surrounding the body, weeping. And these sweet widows showed Peter all the tunics and garments that Tabitha had probably made for them. And then Peter was prompted by the Holy Spirit to, to move people out of the room. So he pushes the widows and, well, probably not in a mean way, but he says, you guys need to leave, right? The widows and the other Christians who were there go outside. And he knelt down and he prayed next to her body. And when he was done praying, Peter looked at Tabitha's lifeless body and he said, Tabitha, arise. Does that give you flashbacks? I mean, that's like Lazarus. Think about that. When Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And she opened her eyes and she looked over at Peter and she sat up. And, and Peter offered her his hand. He helped her up out of bed and he called out to the widows and to the other people and he showed them, you guys, Tabitha's back from the dead. And, what, and just as it happened in the other town in Lydda, so also here happens in Joppa, that the word spreads quickly. Verse 20, uh, 42 says that many believed in the Lord. So Jesus rescued Tabitha from physical death, and then he also rescued many in Joppa from spiritual death, granting them faith and repentance in Jesus. And verse 43 says that Peter stayed for many days in Joppa with a man named Simon who was a tanner, and we'll talk more about him next time. But probably Peter hung out in Joppa to continue to shepherd this fledgling church, to teach them, to pray with them, to build, with them, um, build them up, encourage them as they grew. This healing here of Tabitha is remarkably similar to Jesus' healing of Jairus' daughter in Mark 5. Jairus' daughter had died, and so Jesus came into the house. He sent the crowds out of the house. He spoke to the dead body. The girl came back to life, and he took her by the hand, and he helped her up and out of bed. And so this reminds us again that Peter healed Tabitha by whose power? Jesus' power, right? Not by his own power. And even though Peter doesn't tell Tabitha to be healed, quote, in the name of Jesus, what do we see him doing? He spends time praying here before he heals Tabitha. Now, how do we apply this? Well, the healings in this passage give us at least three important applications that I want to talk about. First is this. Disease and death shout to us that we need Jesus to rescue us from sin. Okay? If you have not done it recently, go to a cemetery and stand among the graves and gaze across all the rows and rows of tombstones and ask yourself, how am I going to get out of this one? Listen to the cemetery because it is shouting to you that you need God to rescue you from death. 
Walk through the intensive care unit at a hospital or the cancer wing at the Seattle Children's Hospital. See young kids battling sickness. See old people fighting for their lives and hear the voice of God yelling at you. You need to be rescued from eternity of this, an eternity of suffering. Young people and old people alike, listen closely. None of us are as big or bad or bulletproof as we think we are. You will be broken sooner or later. When I was a young, younger, I think in college, I memorized this verse, which was a great verse to memorize, Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach, teach me to number my days aright so that I may gain a heart of wisdom. In other words, Lord, let us see the reality of the shortness of our lives so that we may live wisely during the time you have given us on earth, however much time we have left. Lord, rescue us from sin. Help us to live for your glory with all that we are during this time on earth. I mean, sin, the grave, death tells us we can't defeat it on our own. We need to trust in Jesus because he defeated it for us. We need to trust in Jesus so that we can be broken free from the bondage of sin over us and from eternal disease and death that accompany it. Second, miraculous healings show us a glimpse of what the future holds for everyone who trusts in Jesus. Okay. Pastor Tony Merida writes, and I've shared this before, I like it. Ultimately, we know that prayers for the healing of those who love Christ are always answered with a yes. Yes soon or yes later. We know that disease and death plague all of humanity. Why? Because all of humanity suffers the consequences of sin. We don't know why God allows specific tragedies to happen or why he allows certain people to suffer or why he chooses to heal certain people. We do know that for Christians, our present sufferings, if we believe God, if we believe God, there's a lot of voices that can preach to us, but if we, if we fight to believe God, we know that our present sufferings are actually working to prepare for us an eternal weight of glory that is greater than anything we've ever known on earth. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond what? Beyond all comparison. And we also know that for Christians, this is another great thing for Christians. Yes, we want healings, if that's God's will. But because of Christ, death is no longer our enemy. On the cross, Jesus conquered for his people the condemnation and suffering and eternal destruction and hell that wait everybody who rejects that salvation. But for those of us in Christ, it is now more desirable Get, hear this, it is more desirable to be with Jesus in heaven than to stay here. <laughs> when Paul was in prison, he was locked up for preaching the gospel and he was contemplating his own life. He's thinking about, where do I want to be? 
This is what he said in Philippians 1, 21 to 26. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account, talking to the church. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So Christians, even though our hearts might ache for heaven right now, we're not here on accident. God has put you here, right here, right now, to love him, to love your neighbors, to live life on mission for him, to worship together as a church family, to fellowship together as a church family, to serve together as a church family, and to make disciples together as a church family for the greater glory of God and for the greater joy of humanity. That's why you're here, Christian. God has you here as his missionary. And God in his very mysterious and divine wisdom does not heal all of us physically in this life, but he did heal our souls when he saved us and made us born again when we first trusted in him. And this is what's beautiful. When he healed our souls, he filled us with the Holy Spirit as a deposit of things to come. He sealed us. When he healed our souls, he guaranteed our future physical and spiritual healing, totally restored as one new person. When we see God perform miracle, miracles and healings either in the Bible or in our own lives, which I'm not going to, you know, I, we talked about this a while back, what is a miracle? Well, anytime God intervenes and makes something happen in the natural world that wouldn't happen otherwise, or in the spiritual world, it may not be something as, as, as amazing as, as it might seem. I mean, I saw a miracle this week. I was standing, we were in our community group. I was standing on my porch back porch. There are three kids, little kids, playing right beneath me, about 10 feet beneath me. I'm standing next to this grate that I forgot was there. And I just moved, and it bumped this big metal grate and, from the barbecue, and it fell off the deck, right to the ground, and it landed right between three one-year-olds. And I'm thinking, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for protecting those kids. That was a miracle. <laughs> when we see God perform healings in the Bibles and in our lives, we see a glimpse of heaven. We see a glimpse of what God's kingdom is like. We see a glimpse of our future, that this is what Jesus, this is part of what Jesus died to accomplish for us, to totally free us and totally restore us from sin, and to totally give us joy in him. Third, 
Jesus is with you and for you, Christian, in your suffering and in your death. Hear that? That's good news you need right now, that Jesus is with you and for you in your suffering and in your death. We are, of course, we are so thankful for the hope that we have of an eternal weight of glory after this life. Also, though, we need to know that God is with us right now in our suffering. I remember a few years back uh, when, when Stephen Curtis Chapman, he's a famous Christian musician, but his, his young daughter was tragically killed in a car accident in their driveway. And I remember watching an interview with the family about six months after that. And I just remember his, Stephen Curtis Chapman's wife saying, I am so thankful for the future hope that we have because of Jesus. But right now, I just want my daughter back. Because enduring that level of suffering is heart-wrenching, as some of you, many of you have experienced firsthand. So yes, we're so thankful for God's love. We're so thankful for what he accomplished for us on the cross. We're so thankful for his resurrection. We're thankful for the future hope we have in Christ. But we need God's help right now. Do you ever feel that? <laughs> I need you now, God. And thankfully, that's what Jesus promises to give us and has given us in Christ. No matter how dark the valley we're in, no matter how tortured our souls are right now, promise, Jesus promises us, I will never leave you. I'm with you. And get this, I will never forsake you. That's the other part of the promise. It's not just that he's with us, but he's not going to turn against us. And we need God to help us because the fact is that God hasn't healed many of us and our loved ones the way that we've begged him to. And, and so as I read a passage like this, we thank God for miracles. We celebrate the ways we've seen God do miracles in our own lives and in this church in the past year. But what should we do right now when the abstract concept of future glory doesn't heal my agony right now? First, I would say this. If you're experiencing, it's messy, okay? <clears throat> if you're experiencing a messy mix of emotions like faith at moments in God, anger toward God, disappointment with God, terrible pain, a longing for Scripture to be true even though it doesn't feel true, if that describes you in any way, then you are right on par with what many of the writers of Scripture felt. God gave us scripture and he gave us his word to know that we're not alone in this. He's given us many books in scripture like Job and the Psalms and Lamentations and Ecclesiastes that give voice to this whole spectrum of emotions, including what we might be feeling in times of severe suffering and depression and despair and anxiety. So I would encourage you to open your Bible and read some of those books. You'll, you'll likely read verses that describe much of what you're feeling. I know just experientially for me in my life, some of the things that have carried me through is sitting in a psalm and camping out in that for about a month every day that preaches to my soul. It doesn't necessarily relieve the pain, but it's, it articulates the pain. And I'm thankful that God's the one who gave the words. He knows. Second, in the midst of our suffering, we must counter our unstable emotions. You know, our emotions are what we're going to feel. They are what they are, right? 
But we've got to counter them at some point, and we've got to counter our minds, which are frail, with faith in the promises of God. Okay? We've got to fight for faith. That's, that's a lot of the story of the Christian life, is fighting for faith and fighting for joy in Jesus, whatever our circumstances are. So when our lives are knocked down by a terrible circumstance, we've got to ground our, what, it, it reveals a little bit sometimes what are, we've been building our lives upon. Have I built my life on the rock? Did I build it on the sand? When the storm comes, do I have any foundation? Any way to make sense of any of this? God, this is why in the Psalms, God refers to himself as the rock. He's unchanging. He doesn't change, even though everything else does. He doesn't. And his words, his promises are forever true. And we want to, so we want to hide that truth in our minds and in our hearts. This is where Bible memory is important. This is where learning songs with God's truth in them are important. Because certain passages of Scripture will speak to you in different ways. And sometimes in the middle of whatever you're going through, God will bring a passage to mind that maybe you weren't even thinking of. Or a song. Here are a few passages that minister to us in times of trouble. There's a lot, but Psalm 46, 1 to 3 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. In other words, when everything we've known as the strongest thing that exists shakes, God doesn't. Isaiah 41.10 says, this is God's word, fear not, for I am with you, Christian. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold you up. I will uphold you in my righteous right hand. Luke 12, 6 to 7. That's what Jesus said when he was on earth. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Hear that? Not one sparrow is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. That's a fun one today, kids. Try to count the hairs on your head. God knows. And what he says is, therefore, or basically the, 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 the implication is, fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And there's so many encouraging promises like these throughout all of Scripture. And while they don't necessarily, they may not remove all the pain we're feeling, they do help build our faith in God. They help us keep our focus on Jesus in the middle of the storm. We don't need delusional positive thinking. We need truth. That's what we want to ground our life on. And thankfully, this is an awesome, true gospel to ground our lives on. It is the only true gospel. And then the third thing, remember, we're kind of under the heading of what do I do <clears throat> when this abstract concept of future glory isn't healing me and helping me in my agony right now the way I would want it to. The third point I would say is this. Ask the Holy Spirit of Jesus who lives in you 
Christian, to minister to you and to comfort you. The Holy Spirit of God, his name, in the, in the Greek word, or you read at, Jesus, at, uh, at the Last Supper, Jesus says, I'm going to send the comforter to you. God, the Holy Spirit. There's one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus went back to heaven. He sent the Holy Spirit to indwell the church, to comfort us. The comforter isn't in you if you have rejected Jesus. You don't have a grounds for comfort. You, you are in the same place that all of us were before we trusted in Christ. But if you want the comforter, if you want the problem solver for your sin, trust in Jesus and receive the comforter. Jesus didn't die only so that we could be with him when we die. Jesus died to usher us into his presence right now. Romans 8, 26 says this about the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I don't know if you've ever been at that point in your life where you're like, just moaning. Like that's all you can do is moan and say, God, pray for me. So I can't even pray for myself. I don't even know what to pray for. Man, it's so thankful that God is on our side. The Holy Spirit is, is here to help us, to minister to us. It doesn't mean he's going to mystically remove all of our sad feelings for us, but he will minister to us in ways we can't see. He, is our, he will advocate for us. He will pray for us. He will manifest the presence of Jesus in our life in a real way. And additionally, because the Holy Spirit fills all Christians, he's going to minister to us through other Christians. The Lord often works through Christians to encourage and strengthen other Christians. So I give these three kind of answers to this question, not to offer an overly simplistic answer to how we should preach growth, uh, grief as Christians. But the thrust of this application point is that God testifies over and over again in his word. He's with us in our suffering. <laughs> He's with you in the ICU room. <laughs> He's with you when you're laying next to your, <laughs> your dying spouse or your kid battling cancer. He's with you. <laughs> We gotta preach it to each other, you guys. <laughs> we gotta preach it to ourselves because we forget. <laughs> so whatever you're going through, however sin and disease and death have hurt and maimed you, however God's will has unfolded for you in your life, hear these precious words from God that he gave to us who know him. Romans 8, 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long, we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death 
nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these promises and your word. We thank you for the miracles that you do in our life. We thank you that uh, you are good and you are wise and you are perfect and that your salvation will totally restore us one day. We thank you that you're with us in our suffering right now. Give us strength to breathe and to live each day in the midst of suffering and pain. Encourage your church. Help us, God, to grieve as those who have hope. Help us to celebrate that you, Jesus, your gospel is the greatest thing we have known or ever will know. Everything we see around us right now is transient, but you remain the same now and forever. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.